Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Rory Poulter. We're reporters at Third Sector. And each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings on in the charity world. This week we'll be hearing from Food Cycle about how they attract, train up and keep their volunteers happy. And later in Charity Change My Life, we'll be hearing how Help for Heroes supported an army veteran on his journey out of addiction and mental illness. But first, Rory, what's been keeping you busy this week? Well, it's been keeping me busy this week and it's been keeping me busy last week. It's the English National Opera, ENO. They've been in the news a fair amount. Last week, it was for a failure to file their accounts with Companies House, which meant they were actually facing striking off action. Are they still facing strike off action they're not anymore mm-hmm. i asked them why that is they never responded to me but it seems like they finally filed the accounts that were late and so they were let off essentially so all of that was going down last week but this week i would say has even been more disastrous as the music director all of a sudden announced his resignation oh we did a post on x formerly twitter saying that the charity were driving a coach and horses through the artistic integrity of the whole of the ENO as a performing company because of proposed cuts. So these were pretty damaging cuts to specifically the music element. They cut 19 musical staff positions, or they planned to, and the rest of the musicians will all be put on part-time contracts, Mm. which would result in losing around 40% of their annual income. So he reacted very strongly to that. Yeah, not surprising. And resigned pretty much immediately, which the ENO did not seem to take kindly to. They described their reaction as disappointed and surprised in a post on Twitter as well. Why have these cuts happened? So it's in response to a lot of controversy about funding from Arts Council England. So initially it was decided that ENO wouldn't be receiving funding from Arts Council England because they had been requested by the government to start funding more stuff outside of London. Mm. Now, they didn't want to stop funding ENO, so what's happened is they have agreed to fund them, but it requires ENO moving outside of the capital. Mm -hmm. And because of the financial strain that that's putting on and the upcoming repayment of COVID loans, they just don't have the funds to keep on as many people as they want to keep on. But that, again, is not something that musical director Martin Brabens was particularly happy about. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And then the late filing of the accounts and the potential strike-off, was that connected to all of this? It was. They blamed the late filing of the accounts on the confusion about funding from Arts Council England. So it kind of all feeds into each other, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. They're still, I believe, haven't filed their accounts with the Charity Commission, which are about 140 days late. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So... It's all a bit of a mess over there, it seems, at the moment at least. Well, I wonder what next week in the news of the ENO will bring you. (laughs) I'm excited to find out. Moving on to this week's main feature, we're here to talk about volunteering. Earlier this month, the social enterprise Works For You published research suggesting that volunteering in England and Wales is worth more than £324 billion a year, or almost 15% of GDP. And as well as being economically important, volunteers are obviously crucial to the charity sector's ability to function. But numbers have generally been going down since the COVID-19 pandemic. A few months ago, Sir Peter Wanless told us on this podcast that volunteer numbers at the NSPCC are declining as the charity's backbone of branch and district volunteers gets older. 
former cabinet secretary Gus O'Donnell, also on this podcast, flagged the opportunity presented by what he called the surplus army of 50 to 64 year olds who don't want to be in work, but would be up for volunteering. So how can charities revitalise their volunteer base? Sophie Tebbets is joining us for this discussion. She's the head of programmes at the food poverty charity Food Cycle, and in January will be stepping up to become Food Cycle's chief executive. Hi, Sophie. Hi, lovely to meet you both. And lovely to meet you too. So diving straight in, how important are volunteers to Food Cycle's operations and what's your volunteer headcount at the moment? Yeah, so our volunteers are the lifeblood to what we do. They deliver all our services uh, across the country, across uh, 80 different projects in England and Wales. Currently, we have around 6,000 active volunteers. So we deem active volunteers of people who've delivered a volunteering service with us in the past three months. But we have around 15,000 people registered on our books. So they are a very important aspect. We could not do what we do without them. How are you finding the climate for attracting and retaining volunteers? It's definitely an interesting one at the moment. I think we've seen a shift post-COVID in terms of we had this massive peak and uplift when obviously people were desperate to connect and get out. And as kind of lives have gone back and also we're finding with the cost of living crisis and people having to change work patterns and things like that, we're seeing that time is even more precious to people. So we are definitely seeing a change in the shift. But we do things slightly differently at Food Cycle in terms of we make it really, really easy to volunteer with us. And we think that flexibility really allows us to kind of bring people in to try things out. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a relatively young charity, aren't you? You've been going about 14, 15 years. And I appreciate that this precedes your time at the charity. But can you tell us at all how you built up your volunteer base in the first place? Yeah, so originally our founder based all our projects. He was a university student and he was seeing food waste and he was seeing food poverty and he was like, how are we having these two things collide? How do we connect people over a really delicious meal and solve both those problems? So our mission and vision is all about tackling hunger and loneliness. And we really had a strong student cohort to begin with because we were based in university towns. As we've grown and evolved as an organisation, we have still actually very much retained that young kind of volunteer guest space so we kind of buck the trends for most charities where our core volunteer age range is around 25 to 45 and I think that's because of the type of volunteering we do it's very hands-on you're in a kitchen (laughs) quite physical and um and so and I think we've really been able to foster that by looking at how we onboard volunteers and looking at that volunteer journey to kind of retain that group of people. Yeah, in reference to like this building up of the volunteer base, would you mind like explaining what kind of things have worked and what hasn't worked? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I think is a real key metric to what we do is flexibility. So to be a volunteer, you are always already contending with lots of different busy things within your life. So we need to make it as easy as possible for you to volunteer with us. So we really streamlined our volunteer processes. We do a lot of it is online, a lot of training is online. You essentially can go onto a website, fill in a couple of forms, watch a video, and then select your session. And it's as quick like that. You can do it within 30 minutes to sign up and be a volunteer with us. 
And what we found by stripping out a lot of systems and processes and allowing that flexibility, we actually get more loyalty because that pressure of, oh no, I have to commit to six months or I have to make sure I'm doing every other Wednesday because we're saying, no, you, you volunteer when it works for you. It doesn't feel so burdensome when you join the organization and then you kind of get a taste for it and you're like, oh, this actually isn't too much and I can keep coming and I can choose and you're in control of your time, which we really think is a a massive benefit in terms of how we've built that base. Mm. And that hasn't resulted in like gaps in your schedules of, oh no, we, you know, would have loved to have known two weeks ahead that this person wasn't going to be around or that we weren't going to have these numbers. Yeah. So we, we have two tiers of volunteers. So we have our regular volunteers who do our cooking and hosting and food pickups and it's super flexible for them. So you can do every single week or you could do once a month or you could do once every six months, you know, it's up to you depending on your schedule. And then we have project leaders. So they're effectively the people who almost form a committee to run their local project. And we ask for a more of a commitment with them. And we do high level of training and we do much more tighter sort of support and guidance with them as well. So we're looking for people there to give that commitment. So because we have the two sort of streams, it kind of complements it. We do find those summer is always (laughs) it's always our peak time you know it's summer holidays people going away and looking at their rotors that can be a really tricky time for us to making sure that we have a consistent service and making sure that that's being filled and have there been any things that you've tried in terms of how you engage with your volunteers that maybe haven't worked so well that you've decided to leave and move on to something else I think one interesting thing that we've sort of gone on a bit of a journey with is we used to have a lot of additional roles in terms of people could be a comms leader or they could do a fundraising leader. And we we used to have multiple different leader roles. And pre-COVID, I think there was much more of an appetite for those succinct roles and people were already giving time and they were like, oh, what else can I do? Whereas we're now seeing that their time is fixed. So actually it's trying not to make roles too expansive and kind of still having them available for people who do want to go that extra and have those extra bits, but not making that so much of a, something that we push so explicitly because we definitely see that that's more of an ask on people. You mentioned earlier that your organization kind of bucks the trend by having a mostly young volunteer workforce. I was just wondering Have you ever tried or are you interested in tapping into the previously mentioned surplus army of 50 to 64 year olds? Yeah, I mean, saying that our oldest volunteer is Nan, as is her nickname, and she's 90 years old and she volunteers with us in Birmingham and it's fabulous. So we do absolutely have a a range and within the teams, it's really nice because you have a nice mix of older, younger, mid-career, mid-family. So lots of different demographics of ages. We have annual campaigns of kind of, we're going to try and target this demographic. We'll look at who we've got in our cohort. We'll look at that in national census. Does that match up? Who are we missing that could represent us and be involved? Because we always want to be super inclusive. So we'll run campaigns based on that. So we have, for example, run a retiree campaign before focusing on that how do we reach out to them how do we get them involved so it's kind of an annual review that we look at we look at where the gaps are but equally we have a really nice core age group and it works so it's kind of making sure we're leading with our strengths as well Mm. And thinking about the motivations and the way of engaging those different groups how 
did you reach out to the retirees, for example, and, and how is that different to your usual approach to your core supporter base? Yeah, so we looked at different networks and community bases, so like UA3, which is University of the Third Age and kind of groups like that. And kind of we looked around, Okay, if building a profile, if I am a person who's kind of in the 65 plus category and I'm looking to utilize my time in some way, what do I look like and what would attract me to being involved? So we looked at also mixed offline and online campaigns as well in terms of how we access that. So what are the most appropriate uh, social media channels to use? Where are the places that these types of people gather locally? A lot of our outreach has to be quite hyper-local based on where the projects are based because we're not completely national yet. So we would look at kind of messaging there and then then looking at our imagery and looking at words and, and if we've got that profile, how would we be attracted to them? And also a lot of case study collection. So where we do have people who fit that category, because it's all well and good me saying how fabulous it is, but what convinces people is, oh, someone who looks like me, sounds like me, is saying it's fabulous. Maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah. So in terms of the importance of volunteers, I mean, not just at your organization, but in general, do you find that they help build like a, a sense of community within themselves as volunteers? Massively. So actually, every year we run our volunteer celebration events. And I was in Leeds for our North one this weekend, actually. So we had over 26 projects across the North represented by volunteers who all came together to kind of celebrate their achievements, but also learn from each other and chat about how the different projects go and things like that. And it was so nice to see that sense of community and connection. And, you know, People are often very like-minded. The reason they're getting volunteering with certain organisations is because there's a motivation within there. It might be that they want to give back. It might be personal experience. Myriad of different reasons why people get involved. But that sense of community and feeling united, going towards a common goal and something to make a positive impact, I think is a really nice source of connection and is a great way to meet new people as well. Mm, Yeah, one of the key reasons for many people going into volunteering in the first place, right? And actually, I was reading some research that you'd done at Food Cycle, looking into the motivations of your volunteers, and I think it was 95%. So practically everybody was there to reduce food poverty, a few less, 88% to fight food waste. But then also pretty high up there was strengthening local community, tackling loneliness, and then 69% meeting new people. So how have you used that information to tailor your offering when you're communicating outreach efforts to potential new volunteers and your sort of marketing strategy for getting them on board? Yeah, so I think it's all about understanding people's motivations. People come in and want to volunteer for different reasons. So it's making sure that we're representing that in the different kind of campaigns and outreach that we do. I mean, the core of what we do is bring people together and it's that connection. Often what we see is people come in because they are passionate about a a social injustice or a cause, and then they go on a journey and it's that, that social side and they often think they're going to be giving more to others and actually it's the journey that they go on themselves in terms of development and things so a lot of storytelling I think is really important in terms of engaging with that so it's really good case studies it's documenting those journeys of volunteers who have had positive impacts on their lives and and being able to retell that and and show that um, I think is a really core element of how we kind of market and outreach to volunteers. Mm, And does that 
marketing and creating the case studies, does that require a lot of resource internally? We've kind of developed and honed that system. So it's kind of a cross-department system that we look at. And we also asked our volunteers to identify a case study. So if they're having a really nice conversation with someone and they think, wow, this is an incredible story. We actually have a system where they can flag that to HQ and then we will then pick it up and have those conversations. So it's making sure that, you know, we're 40 staff and 6,000 volunteers. So we we really have to work with our volunteers to in order to get the best outcome and utilising, they're the eyes and ears of the organisation. So if they're hearing really good stories or they're seeing good conversations, it's making sure we've got a really nice communication channels so that can be fed back so then as staff we can go out and collect it and create this nice pool of stories. Mm, Yeah and having the right system set up so that that communication channel is open and effective. Absolutely absolutely I mean I love a system. (laughs) We use a CRM called Salesforce for that and we've spent a lot of time developing that making that bespoke for different channels and things to kind of make sure that we are logging that information correctly making sure we get the right consent but also making sure that we can have that nice chain of follow-up as well uh, so for your volunteers are there opportunities for them to develop new skills maybe climb up higher in the ranks of volunteers i'm sorry i don't really know if there's like a tier system absolutely so we have lots of different journeys that you can go on as a volunteer and it depends what you want to achieve. So when you fill in an application form, you say kind of what you would like to get out of your volunteering. Is it skills? Is it connection? Is it community? And we then we try and kind of offer things based on those aspirations. So we have a retention scheme. It's amazing what we have these little fruit and veggie badges. So if you hit certain hours, you get like a strawberry or you get a plum. And it's amazing, like it's silly little things like that, but like people will put them on their aprons and wear them with pride. Like I've done a hundred hours and I'm a peach and you know, and it's <laughs> it's like little things like that, making sure that we're saying we recognize you, we see you. We also have a peer-to-peer system in terms of recognition. So it's called Food Cycle Hero. And it's where volunteers can nominate other volunteers who have gone the extra mile or done something really nice. And and as we know, it's always nice when it's your peers noticing something. Mm. I mean, we could look at hours or we could look at, you know, that sort of thing. But actually that personal touch means a lot more. So we, we have these recognition schemes. We also have a huge suite of training. So we operate in kitchens. We're effectively like pop-up cafes. So we have to have a lot of kind of training in terms of compliance, of food safety, safeguarding, that sort of thing. But we also have a huge suite of other trainings, sort of disability awareness, nutrition training, mental health training training and these are all free and run on a regular basis so if you are someone who wants to develop maybe cv skills or wants kind of accredited training to help kind of you develop your learning that's all offered as part of that Mm. but then thinking about that mandatory training that needs to be done for people who are handling food for example that sounds quite onerous but then you said earlier that sort of your USP in in getting the right volunteers and the right number of volunteers is the fact that you're super flexible and make it really easy. How do you kind of reconcile those two? We put a lot of time and effort into our training and our how do we do it. And so we do a lot of online training, but that's interactive. We create a lot of kind of videos and short snapshots. So we make sure that we get the top kind of information. And then we look at the different roles. So with project leaders, they have a deeper level of training and understanding so that they can also facilitate that on-site training through good practices and things like that. So it's not easy, (laughs) but we're constantly asking ourselves, 
is this information that they absolutely necessary? How do we give it so it's really clear, everyone understands it, but is also easy to digest? Great. I was just wondering if you could offer me some insight into community level recruitment versus more of those nationwide commitment drives that you do. Which do you find gets more feedback or how comparatively in terms of effort put into it to people actually volunteering? What does it compare? It can be quite a mix. So I would say in the national platforms, what we tend to see is that, if I'm honest, that's good for SEO, but actually kind of the drawing in of applicants that kind of go through is lesser. I do think the kind of community-based recruitment is stronger. We know that I think it's about 40% of our volunteers have got involved because of friends or family. So it's about us actually creating really good experiences and good volunteer experiences so that people can share within their wider network and recommend and kind of speak out. We do run, so during kind of freshers and refreshes, we'll go to university fairs and things like that and kind of community events and community events that are are kind of akin to that. So we'll kind of do environmental fairs or we'll do vegan fairs or veggie fairs. So we, we look at kind of adjacent themes as well. So if you're into that, you might be into us and kind of look at those community groups as well and events. But we are selective with that because we have found that sometimes in terms of staff time and resource the return on investment isn't the same so it's making sure that we're going to the right ones and if that was successful last year let's go to that one and if that one didn't really come off why was that is that something that we should keep going so we're constantly looking at that because I think it's important that we get the most amount for the time that we're giving. Yeah absolutely and then just digging into your team structure you said you've got about 40 permanent staff do you have a dedicated volunteering management team within that so we have just appointed a volunteer recruitment retention officer who will be focusing solely on that we have a wider volunteering strategy that the programs team so the ones who deliver the offering all have kpis based on and all kind of have remits within so everyone knows their targets for their regions in terms of how many leaders we need to come in how many volunteers how long we want people to stay for and that sort of thing so it's a collective effort but then we have the volunteer recruitment and retention officer and then we also have our national training coordinator because that is part and parcel of that journey and it's a really important piece of investment Mm. And then I think just a final question, wondered if you take a different approach depending on the skill type of the volunteers that you're trying to recruit. How do you reach out in different ways? Yeah, so I think we want diverse volunteer pools. We want different skill types. I know sometimes when we're going out for cooking, volunteers are like, but I can't cook a bolognese or something. But we're like, you can wash up, you can <laughs> chop a carrot. So, you know, you shouldn't be put off. We try and make it easy and approachable. We just want people who want to be there. And hopefully we can give them a fun experience. I think the main thing about volunteering is we've got to make it fun for people. So it's also assessing how can we support you as well. So, for example... We have a whole kind of stream of work for people who might need additional support or have additional needs. We look at flexi volunteering as well. So potentially if we have volunteers who a full session is too much, we can give them smaller bite-sized chunks of a session or we would work with them in conversation because they're the experts in what they need and we would work with them closely and see what we can deliver there. So we try and take a quite a broad stroke in terms of 
of journeys for volunteers, but there's always case by case circumstances where we want to make it work and be beneficial for the people involved with us. Great. Well, Sophie Tevitz, Head of Programmes at Food Cycle, thank you so much for giving us that really fascinating insight into how things work at Food Cycle and hopefully lots of great useful tips for our listeners. Fabulous. Thanks so much. Lovely to speak to you both. Now we move on to Charity Changed My Life, in which we bring you the stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better through the work of charities. This week, we hear from Brian Brown, who tells us about the support he received from Help for Heroes, 15 years after being discharged from military service. Hello, uh, my name's Brian Brown. I'm a, a veteran. I served with the 1st Battalion, the Royal Highland Fusiliers, for 13 years. So I was involved in an explosion in Northern Ireland way back in the the 90s and I was finally medically discharged in 1999. I kind of thought I was okay, but I kind of went 10 years just really not adjusting into civilian life. And that's why I ended up uh, becoming a functioning alcoholic. And it wasn't till 10 years afterwards till I went to a doctor's appointment that he sat me down and said uh, that I had cirrhosis of liver. They said if I didn't act uh, immediately, I only probably only had, I had two months to live. And they diagnosed me with having a uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder for the traumas that I'd experienced whilst I was in the army. At that time, when I was diagnosed with having PTSD, there wasn't really much knowledge of it. And I kind of found myself trying to reach out to people but certain agencies because I had an addiction and I didn't kind of fit their criteria but it wasn't until I actually got in touch with Help for Heroes and they invited me down to Catrick that I kind of found myself where I was actually welcomed and people kind of understood where I was and they sat me down and they gave me a cup of coffee and they were very welcoming and friendly and they kind of understood what I was saying. I kind of found myself on a course with similar type people who had all experienced certain traumas. We were all on our own wee journeys, but we went and we'd done activities and we'd done them together. And, and it was just the sheer camaraderie of everything. It was quite therapeutic, to be honest. And we could all talk to each other. I mean, I feel immensely uh, thankful for what Helpful Heroes have done for me. Uh, I've managed to find myself back living a life that, I didn't really expect to be living. I managed to see my two sons growing up. I'm still happily married and I'm actually back working full time now. That was Brian Brown talking about his involvement with Help for Heroes. And if you would like your organisation to be featured in Charity Change My Life, then we'd love to hear from you. All it takes is a short voice message from someone who has benefited from your services submitted to our voice note mailbox. You can find the link to record your message and further guidance in the show notes to this episode. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be taking you behind the scenes at Bernardo's for a day in the life of a charity policy advisor. Thanks very much to our guest Sophie Tebbets and our producer Nav Patel. 